This is Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Mark. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in. If you're new or been a long-time listener, thank you very much. Today's guest makes me want to go back and revisit some old favorites. Welcome drummer Stephen Hodges to the podcast. And man, we hit on a whole lot in this episode, like the importance of hanging out, how once upon a time musicians could make a living playing a club five to six nights a week, the importance of playing with more than just sticks, and the difficulties of playing without cymbals. That started after meeting and playing with Tom Waits and learning his unusual percussive desires. But his career began way before that as an accompanist in his college dance department. In addition to playing with Tom Waits, he's played with some other legendary artists like Billy Preston, David Lynch, Mark Ford, Stevie Wonder, and Mavis Staples, to name a few. He was also in one of the strangest touring versions of the Smashing Pumpkins. Stephen talks about how he began his long-term gig with Mavis Staples. In fact, they had to cancel their first two gigs because they rehearsed so hard that Mavis had to rest her voice. His job with Mavis has also given him a fascinating look into the unique relationship between her and Bob Dylan, which almost led to him filling in for Dylan's drummer. Almost. He has a new album with MSSV, Main Steam Stop Valve, his band with Mike Baguetta and Mike Watt, called Human Reaction. This band is unique with a mix of jazz and punk. It's fascinating, actually. Steven talks about the band, how they write and play the music live well ahead of recording it. And this music is challenging, fun. You really never know where each song is going to go. So check it out at MainSteamStopValve.com or MSSV on Facebook and grab the new album, Human Reaction. Check out the podcast at Performance ANX on X and Instagram and Performance Anxiety on Facebook or reach out at the Performance Anxiety Pod at gmail.com. Check out our merch at PerformanceANX.Threadless.com and you can send coffee money to KO-FI.com slash Performance Anxiety. Now enjoy a wonderful history lesson with Stephen Hodges of MSSV, a performance anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Okay, I am not suffering from... Yes, I am. No, wait a minute. <laughs> Momentarily suffering from performance anxiety, but not really. I'm Stephen Hodges. Currently on the road with our band with Mike Baguetta and Mike Watt, MSSV, and we are supporting our new record called Human Reaction on Big Ego Records, and um, we'll be in your town possibly, so you can check us out on the MSSV band website, but please check out Performance Anxiety and the podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Um, oh, man. Yeah. I'm, I like talking. Talking can be fun. Oh, yeah. Hopefully this is this is pretty yeah. casual episode, pretty casual show. So uh, what I like to do is kind of start with how you got into music in the first place. So we'll just kind of start there and progress to the okay. new album. And uh, right, okay. it'll be nice and simple. So, Well, how I, how 
I got started with MSSV and Mike Baguetta, basically. Well, let's actually, let's start from the, the beginning. Let's start about oh. how you got into music initially in the first place. Was oh, how there, I started, like, okay, as, you know, as my... Uh, as a musician, uh, uh, yeah. Was, a brief history, okay. Ex exactly. Was there a lot of music oh. in the house? Were your parents playing yeah. a lot? Is that what got you into it in the first place? Well, I did come from a family where my mother wish that she played better than she did. She wasn't bad, but she would love to have been just fluent because she just loved, came from the era where a lot of people played the piano and took dancing lessons. You know, it's just like, these are the social things people do. So she had us into Miss Stanley's and with my sister and my cousins were over there at Miss Stanley's and having to do the recitals and such. And that was cool. But I don't think I really had an example in the house really of what, you know, what just playing music was about or, or a concept of that yet. Okay. So it was a little strange, even though I guess I did pretty well because I, yeah, music always was the thing that worked best for me in school and what have you. So anyway, I, I did take piano for a few years, but then I really wanted to get out and be more social. You know, I, I, Right. Went to work with my dad on the weekends and I didn't know how to hang out. And half of being a musician is how to hang out, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and be calm about it. You know, it's like a lot right. of hurry up and wait in the music business. But then a family friend was in a surf band, uh, Tim Boyer. I think they were called the Bayman. And they were kind of like just under being one of the top surf bands, I guess, you know, on the you know, Palos Verdes coast or what have you. Oh, nice. But anyway, that, that, that kind of stuck. And then you were able to go to school and take, you know, band teacher would come around once a week. And then once you got to junior high, you got to go to a class every day. And that was just heaven. And that's where I actually excelled at timpani. And so I was the timpanist in the orchestra and all city orchestra. Oh, cool. And uh, yeah, it was a really great experience. And you know, the thing of it is, too, is that you don't know when you're doing it, but you don't get those experiences once you're out of school, unless you're in an orchestra. And, and, you know, for as many timpanists as there are, there are very few orchestras, believe me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so obviously, you know, so for me, you know, that that was a great period because I learned about mallets and different densities of mallets, hard and soft and what have you. Oh, okay. um, a lot of stuff that a lot of drummers like didn't even know mallets or brushes existed. They were like, you know, so, so anyway, then high school and then the orchestra there was just jungle. It was crazy. So that wasn't really that happening, but the big band jazz was happening. And I really, once I got kind of rolling, I was excelling at that. And then uh, went to junior college and was kind of like, you know, featured artists with the big band and stuff with the drums. And, uh, and at, at the same time, I, a big deal was that I started working at the college and the creative arts department as a companyist in the dance department specifically. And then oh. as a composer for children's theater or adult theater. And, um, so I would be in this really old dance studio with like 40 foot ceilings and, you know, all this hardwood and the windows way up high and all yeah. this. And I'm sitting there in a set of congas, boom, and just watching the girls dance and listening to the cadence of the teacher, you know, because they use their voice 
in a way that really informs it coaxes these certain things out of the dancers and, oh, and, that, wow. and that speaks to the musician as well. So that was a plus. That was a, that was a really cool thing that I was able to get on there and work there for like 20 or I forget a long time. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you know, playing in different bands. When my first child was born, that's when I really started getting work like where in the mid seventies through the early eighties, you could work six or seven nights a week in the same bar oh, wow. week after week, month after month. You just leave your gear there because if you were popular and you were lucky, that's how it was, you know? Oh, wow. So we got to play a lot. And through that, I ended up being sort of scouted by this guy, James Harmon, who turns out to be, you know, sort of a sub uh, hero guy of the, uh, the blues kind of, you know, like we used to open with the blasters and stuff. We were right. friends with the blasters and okay, acts yeah. and different bands. So we used to play the bars six nights a week, but then we were sent. He was sensitive to when we could go up to LA and do showcases at Madame Wong's or the Roxy or the whiskey. And so that's where I met uh, Tom Waits. I didn't actually meet him there. I saw he and his wife, Kathleen there a couple of times, different Madame Wong's or Cathay de Grand. So they were just kind of, you know, having a night out, but checking out musicians and stuff. So, oh, okay. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Before you skip over this ad, give me one minute. Like most podcasts, I pick sponsors carefully and I use the products that advertise here. Pure Spectrum CBD is a product that has been really beneficial for me. They have a wide variety of great products that can be used on a daily or as needed basis. I've been using the tincture every day and it's been wonderful for easing anxiety. And I absolutely love the isolate. I use it instead of acetaminophen or ibuprofen. And it's worked so well for the relief of aches and pains. 
They also have soaks, lotions, salves, gummies, and more, plus an entire line for fitness recovery. They even have products for your pets. See everything they offer at PureSpectrumCBD.com. And if you have questions, they're there to help. They helped me when I had no idea where to start. After you fill your cart, use code PERFORMANCEANX for 15% off your purchase. Pure Spectrum CBD, Pure Spectrum CBD, Pure Spectrum CBD. And so then, then a little bit later in the 82, that I got a call from their office. And so that was kind of the beginning and that, you know, working, working in LA and, you know, we worked a lot. So we were, so our chops were, you know, we were like hot. We were, you know, I mean, we played every fucking night. Oh, excuse me. Every no, that's night. fine. That's so, fine. <laughs> so, so anywho, that was sort of the beginning of my relationship with Tom Waits. And when, and that, and as history bears it out, that is when, when we started, it was swordfish trombones. And that right. was where he made the departure and started creating in a way they would say, give me that David Lynch sound or give me that Tom Waits vibe, what have you. Mm-hmm. That's when that started with no symbols, no symbols. I, okay. Is that, difficult for you as a drummer who's been at first at first it it was like um, it was embarrassingly challenging momentarily it was i was like are you shitting me you can't play a a pattern and you're relying on that darn symbol and so but pretty soon okay so Back to the dance room and Tom Waite was walking around, you know, we're all kind of, we're at Sunset Sound, we're kind of in a big oval, we're, we're fair, we can hear, we can see each other, but we're not right up next and we have a little bit of separation. So he'll like cruise and talk to each guy and he may have his, cause he had these Sony cassettes and had a speaker and you could record or play your cassette. Yeah, you know, it's I like remember a those. Big, like a couple of big bricks duct taped together, you know? And so he'd carry that around sometimes, but he would do stuff, you know, that he would, he would kind of dance. It was like, just like in dance class, you know, this is like he would do stuff with his body and he would kind of sing something. But one thing I need to say is that he would sing so many things that I don't think he, you know, we were sort of, young at this and so what he was singing was a combination of things but it would be almost well it would be impossible really to do it all at once you know you couldn't do it all at once you need a steam drill you need this you need that you know you need a so it would i really had to learn how to just be uncomfortable for a while at trying to go after what he was looking for just you know just try to sing it in from what I'm hearing and what he's dancing or whatever, you know, and just try to make it work. And then little by little. And, and we also realized like you'd be going and listen. And then Larry Taylor would say the great late, late Larry Taylor would say, yeah, this is good, but needs a backbeat somewhere. And I'm over, over in the corner going, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Like, because Tom can get real specific sometimes and, and the nature of a completer, a more complete beat. You know, he knows we, we both know more about all this stuff now. I mean, this yeah. is a long time ago now, right? Yeah. It was eight, so what, 82, 83? All I'm saying is, is that voice of reason, you know, then 
then you start realizing that your your basic you know like 16 shells or you know um it's like you're 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 playing kind of a shuffle but you're playing it on toms and on and on snare maybe on a you know Jinso boy from that record That was just like a straight up blues song, you know, yeah. but then something like shore leave, you know, I was like, I was like thinking about Miles Davis runs down the voodoo. I was playing like a talking drum where I could make it do 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 with a pedal and stuff, you know, oh, and wow. had a big bass drum. I left all my papers on the Ticonderoga and I was in bed need of a shave. Slopped in the corner on cold chow mein and shot billiards with a midget until the rain stopped. And I bought a long sleeve shirt with horses on the front and some gum and a lighter and a knife and a new deck of cards with girls on the back. I sat down, wrote a letter to my wife. So, you know, there's all, you know, all different things. I mean, in Underground was the funny thing because there were these two, somebody had left these two floor toms with a really severely taped up and no bottom heads. Okay. And, and in this song underground, I mean, the drumming, if you ever saw these old black and white movies, you know, where they got all the slaves down in the bottom rowing mm -hmm. and one big muscular guy is hitting with these big hammers. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was kind of the concept. It was very, you know, uh, there were a couple of rolls and a couple of roughs, but and a triplet or two, but it was basically boom, 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 you know, just. So every fucking mallet that I owned was in shatters, you know, <laughs> and finally I'm looking around and I realize, oh, I have these three S drumsticks. Now these are like now marching drumsticks. There's a whole plethora of marching, but three S there's one S two S three S was just, just a real honking stick. It's okay. a real handful, very, very, very thick drumstick. And then you have those round cymbal felts, you know, that you put the cymbals on. Yeah, so yeah. I somehow had a bunch of those. So I shoved about five or six on each end and then I wrapped it with this. It wasn't even gaffer's tape. I hadn't, I hadn't elevated to gaffer's tape yet. So I used d duct tape. But man, we got that track because, you know, and I've, I've been making mallets ever since. Oh, that, wow. You know, that have a certain amount of weight to them. So I can be, because a mallet, you know, was typically like a timpani thing, which is great, but that's a delicate 
you know, if you want to hit hard, that's just going to vibrate in your hand and it's not going to, uh, not going to carry enough, uh, enough torque. Okay. You know? So I, I've messed around because I really, you know, I guess cause I started with timpani and I'm not that crazy about just sticks anyway. Okay. I like brushes. I like your hands. There's a lot of cool things besides sticks. It's just that pe most people play loud enough. Yeah. You, you can be a lot more yeah. subtle with, with other implements. Yeah. That's, but that's the thing about drums and percussion really is that you can vary the size of the implement and that will, that will guide the tone or the, or the volume. So you lose, you know, thicker sticks, lighter sticks, mallets with poofy stuff, mallets with hard felt, mallets with wood on the ends. You know, it's like runs the gambit, you know, and then get all off into marimba and it's all these different yarns. And, oh my God. <laughs> but for all the densities, you know, but anyway, it does, it does make a difference. Yeah. And Tom always wanted, he wanted orchestra accuracy with the back alley, uh, <laughs> back alley he wanted he wanted the blues in there as right. well yeah. okay yeah had to be loose but had to be accurate you know and i i would get like oh well hodges we're gonna get you in here to play some real drums you know like <laughs> boom crack boom boom crack you know or something it's yeah. like uh you know when those kind of people you're just like whatever debbie you know yeah. it's like, <laughs> i can't i can't i you know <laughs> I mean, I, I had to kind of turn myself inside out a little bit to do what he wanted done. But then there was the bonus of me learning from that whole thing. And I was like, you yeah. know, and then you start thinking about like, well, you know, Mo Tucker in the Velvet Underground almost never hit a cymbal, you know, and that really guided the sound. You, people don't get it. You know, I mean, yeah. it makes a big difference, you know? So if you don't have symbols, you know, you're letting other frequencies have space that they were going to get, you know, look, everybody shares, everybody loses something, Yeah. you know, especially the drums, actually when, when, when everybody's quiet and people listen, Oh my gosh, those drums sound pretty good. You know, but when everybody's playing, everybody steals a little bit from each other, you know? And when you give yourself limitations, like taking something away, it forces right. you to be more creative. That's one thing that I've, I've discovered right. in my, in my own visual work. Yeah. But it, also yeah. with this podcast. I agree. You know, it's like, like set, set up a little bit uncomfortably somehow, yeah. you know, just, just make it, make some music work because I don't know, you know, it's like, even when somebody who doesn't play sits down and they hit an accent on a beat, you never even thought of hitting it. I said, well, that was interesting. You know, it's like, yes, I have this story of, you know, the going, because I used to play gospel music with the, the Preston, Billy Preston and his sister Rodina. Oh, wow. In the mid seventies. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And so we went to a church up in Oakland and it was just, you know, there was all these choirs, you know, seated as the gold robes and the, purple and the blue and just the stuff gets really fired up. Yeah. And so I'm hearing this the classic, you know, two beat. It's all like the punk rock beat nowadays or whatever, but yeah, yeah. it was a big, it was a, you know, a fast two beat kind of a deal in the church, popular beat for sure. And, uh, 
I'm looking around and who's playing those drums, you know, it's just like, this is like just complete commitment to this part, you know? And I look up and it's somebody's grandmother <laughs> in a house dress, in a blue and white house dress and slippers on <laughs> and like a $12 ride symbol. Like it's not, you know, it's, it's just awesomely oddball, you know, <laughs> and you know, a $45 snare drum and, <laughs> $35 bass drum oh and God. it's off the hook off the chain wow. it's like doesn't need to be any hotter than this because you'll burn yourself on this one oh, you know? so, that's so awesome. I'm like I'm like you know hey be nice you know <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna get your teeth kicked in by grandma one of these days and <laughs> no you just need to respect you know obviously just respect wherever anything good comes just like yeah just like I said, my friend Willie J, uh, I mean, he rests in peace. He was the bassist in the Harmon band, Harmon band, a really great guy. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, he sat down at the drums and he, like I said, he, he didn't even really play drums that well, you know, but he had some accent on a beat that I, and I'm like, that's a good idea. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. the same thing with Baguetta. Sometimes he'll have me playing on a part of the, with the bass drum, especially these kind of oddball bass drum patterns, you know? Okay. So we have the counterpoint with the bass and stuff. Yeah. And um, it could be a challenge because it's, you know, he's, he's got sometimes got you hitting in places that aren't, you know, they're off beats. They aren't the most powerful. Somehow the body seems easier to step into the down beats, you know, the, okay. the number, the one, two, three, four kind of deal. You know? Okay. Okay. That's um, what you're saying. So you try to pick up an eighth note in the middle of a bar, you know, it's like, um, for my body, it's odd. <laughs> <laughs> I can do it. You played on one of, it's, it's, this is, this may sound very, a little strange, but you worked on one of the soundtracks and songs that defines like a, a huge chunk of my early musical. I don't want to say identity because I'm not a musician, but what really got me into, uh, I guess maybe out of just listening to rock, Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With oh, Me, yeah. and the right. song The Pink Room in particular. Yeah. That is, that's my favorite soundtrack of any Lynch Isn't movie. That, yeah. But that's, The yeah. Pink Room is possibly one of my favorite songs recorded ever. I absolutely, <laughs> I, I could listen to that on a loop every day, all day long. I feel I feel very strongly about the song. I do, and it's a combination of elements. But one major element I need to bring out right away because he's dead now. Mm -hmm. But David Jariki was the guitarist on uh, that track, yeah. right? And uh, he was a childhood friend of mine, and I grew up with his family and uh, lovely, lovely people half Mexican, half Hawaiian. 
he comes back from one of the leaky tiki uh, luau's with his grandpappies <laughs> and everybody, and he's in the back seat, and there just happens to be a ukulele back there. And by the time they get home, they're hearing five foot two eyes are blue coming out of this little kid in the back seat. Yeah. Oh my god! He's one of these players. The only guy who ever blew my mind more was Mark Rebo. Oh you know, wow! Yeah. Mark has he has he has this he has that but he also has this this intelligence thing he, you know david was more of a classic troubadour you know uh rebo is but he's also kind of like real brainy as well <laughs> as emotional you know okay. so the shit just off the fuck off the charts yeah. you know but so anyway anyway so so David is playing something through this this crazy unit, and like, mm. so we take this uh, rack mount thing and give it to the bass, and say, Dave, you got you got to get a Fender sound. You got to you got to get a Fender guitar sound. You know, like got some kind of I don't know what he had going on, but it was too too modern. You know. Okay. And so so he got his tone adjusted, and then. Lynch got a hold of Don Falzone, the bassist. He says, I want a, a three-note bass line, you know, just three-note, you know. And he's playing it through this rack mount thing that Dave luckily got rid of and <laughs> and and it, and is with the bow and the bow makes the bass really loud, you know. It does like a whole other thing. Oh, man. So, buzzy sustainy thing so yeah we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors hey folks stefan shirazi and renee richardson here from the metallica report and we are proud members of the pantheon podcast family where the best of music and podcasts unite we've got something pretty cool for you we're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So that bass light part is like Neptune, you know, coming out of the, the ocean. Oh, you know, it's yeah. ridiculously powerful. And then to boot, David Lynch puts a triplet delay into the headphones in time with the rhythm that we're playing so now we think we're at headley grange or something you know with with you know with with bonzo and, yeah. and jimmy you know yeah. um working out some parts so you know we're just immersed in this triplet and then david got into this kind of just Real, he could just finally sank in. He just started doing that sim simple kind of hypnotic, you know, not trying to play a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. But what he's playing is so beautiful. And then every once in a while, he'll play some stuff a little bit. But he's got this 
this overall dream sequence thing going on that's just ridiculous. It's yeah. hypnotic. It's amazing. Yeah, exactly, right? The, and and the whole thing is hypnotic. We got, you know, the a three-note bass line, the drum part, boom, 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 trip, you know, triplet, kind of old-time medium slower Jimmy Reed or like a stripper, slower stripper beat, you yeah. know? So, yeah, I mean, we also did other work with David Lynch after that. Okay. And that's on a record called Fox Bat Strategy. that already then that's the complete of what we had we were we were working and we were going to continue working you know we would go into the studio app after the movie stuff but then lynch had a divorce and things went south you know yeah. we didn't really do anything anymore but it was really fascinating because david jariki just happened to be traveling from st croix he just happened to be in long beach in california the exact <laughs> Thank goodness, because he was so good and Lynch liked him so much as well. And honestly, this this is the best recording and the Fox Bat strategy. This is the best record we have because the rest of the other stuff. Well, we have a couple of things from James Harmon where it's off the hook, where David Jurigi plays the guitar. So there is that okay. in the very first thing. But this is the best recording we're going to get wow. that's available, you know, of Jariki. So, so I'm, I, that was just one of those meant to be kind of things. So, okay. So we're at Capitol records on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, we're on set and they're playing our song really loud through all these PA and Lynch is like more smoke, more smoke. <laughs> you know, and we're in that room where it's all the strung bare lights, you know, yeah. the red, clear white ones yeah and everybody's you know having oral sex under the table and in their <laughs> underwear and then a girl has to strip on stage every time we do a take and all this it's just it was just hilarious you know <laughs> and we're just acting like nothing no big deal you know just another day at the office right, right? And so then we then we go again the next day and it's the same thing you know more naked you know and then a guy had to strip naked on the stage with the girl <laughs> that never made it to the movie but yes, a lot of that. stuff didn't but I think I think he just likes to get it because it's fun to see you know when you do the shots like, I'm not going to use all this but what the hell you know some French underwear and a couple of you know more girls in the scene no big deal yeah you know you, you, know, you but, gotta. Um, like, like you say, you know, we, we, you got to give yourself some options. Well, it, it does add to the ambiance, you know, yeah. you don't, you can't just have a real sparse anyway. So yeah. it does, it really does kind of make every, you know, cause any way you turn, you're going to see somebody's fleshy, whatever, you know, <laughs> so it's all, it's all, you know, kind of highly charged, yeah. you know, and, but we're acting like, mm, eh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was it was it it's was Wednesday. really funny. Yeah. yeah. And the thing of it was too is that 
it's like I was still using the really, when I was playing with Harmon, I had this discovery. Okay, quickly, I, at Madame Wong, she played two sets. So I played the first set with the old bass drum, then the new, the new bass drum was like big, 32 by 16. Oh. So I played the second set with that one, and all of a sudden, where there used to be a blockage of sound from about the waist high up, there's complete clarity. I hear the voice, I hear the guitars, and below that is just this thumpy low bass drum. So it was like, it sonically was a good choice. You know, it, it turned out that I, I, I mean, I gave it a shot, you know, it wasn't yeah. like some big thing and it was, and I didn't expect to get such a large drum, but it just happened to be the coolest looking of all the rest were like cheesy marching, <laughs> crappy chrome. And this was just like a real instrument, you know, this would be the, in the back of the junior high school or high school orchestra on a luggage stand. Right, you know, okay. It's a pretty large instrument. So we were using that drum on Pink Room, and that's part of what made the sound because the low, the fatness and the lowness of that drum creates a space that not, regular drums don't create. It's oh. different, you know? And also, I'd kind of like shifted over to where I would, and I still do this, but it's, and actually that whole kit was stolen. But anyway, oh man, my tom-tom section was a marching snare over here. Right. Okay. And, and, and so I could, I could get a tom-tom sound or put the snare on because I liked the big fat snare plus the regular snare. But then where the rack tom usually would go, that's where I put a conga, and with a bongo tied to it. And so when I'm doing some of these triplets, I'm doing them with snare and bongo, you know, and, you know, bongo is, you know, like, it really point, you know, it really, it speaks and it speaks in that certain space. Like it's completely different than a tom-tom, right. you know? So it, it's more like a snare drum than it's like a tom-tom in a way. Cause it's Makes so, sense. so it high pitched and what have you. So, we're doing traditional rhythms with a bit different voicing, you know, so that played into part of it. And then the, the, the Chinese symbol, you know, the real crazy quick crashes sometimes. And, and then at the end of the pink room, I'm figuring, Oh, I guess we've done enough, you know? So I just start playing just kind of these big, big, balls of, you know, just quarter notes with a cymbal. And, <laughs> and I'm thinking he's, you know, but he used all of it, you know, and then I realized, you know, it hardly takes anything to actually create something that's kind of interesting musically, you know, because yeah. just hitting these quarter notes on beat one with the bass drum and the cymbal and every, and everything's kind of droning and, and declining or, you know, yeah. who would have known, you know, I mean, you know, it's just, it's just you got you got to take your uh, knowledge where you can get it. You know, yes. sometimes like sometimes you're learning in reverse. Yeah, yeah. So that that was a yeah that was a really interesting one for sure. And 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 working in Capitol Records is really special for oh, sure. I can imagine. Yeah. Oh yeah, my god, great studio. Yeah. So that was in the early '90s. When when did you start working with Mike Watt? That would be 97, I believe, 96 okay. or 97. Yeah. So a few years after that, then. Yeah. 
And, and you know, I knew about the Minutemen, but you see, I was already working. I was had children, you know, and yeah. you know, I mean, punk rock. I mean, I was already felt, you know, like pretty punk myself, you know. So <laughs> I didn't. It wasn't as me. I was. I was happy that everybody was happy about it. You know, the people who it really meant a lot to. Yeah. But I'd already dealt with a whole bunch of punk stuff, I thought, as well. So I was like, okay, good on you. You know, history repeats itself or whatever. Yeah. And I respect you, whatever, you know. And we used to do a lot of shows where, we, oh, you sound like my grandmother, blah, blah, blah. You know, but, <laughs> you know, but that just made me just try harder, you know. And yeah. and we had some really strong musicians, you know, they would they would go on attack mode, you know, we usually get, get over by the time our set was done, you know, yeah. but I get it. You know, Harmon was like, he was, he was talented, like kind of really talented, but he kept dressing like he was trying to be in happy days or something, you know, <laughs> I it's saw like, some of the covers. Yeah. People don't, you know, and Hilburn was the writer of, of the times and he, you know, he just didn't want to hear you know, greasers and pool hall sharkies or some shit. He said when he finally interviewed him, and oh, I can't, I can't dispute it because what the fuck are you wearing, man? You know, it's, you know, it's, it's not that day anymore. Yeah. I'm sorry. You're, you're, you're making yourself into a period piece and hey, people weren't exactly. necessarily going for that coming out of him, you know, yeah. and then people like top Jimmy and the rhythm pigs and what have you, you know, just dressing in Levi's and a, and a blazer, you know, or leather jacket getting over big time, you know, wow. like, Hey, that's just, you know, it was like, Hey, don't blame me. I don't make the style rules, but if, if you want to go that hard against it, they'll stop you. Yeah. Because, because, you can see by the look of the people who they do choose what they're choosing. Like, Absolutely. you know, so yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you ended up playing with Mike on uh, contemplating the okay. engine room. Right. In contemplating the engine room. Yes. And it was kind of out of the blue. It's kind of like Tom Waits because wow. I'm not sure that I'd ever actually met him. I, I might've, shaking his hand somewhere at one point, but I don't think so, you know, but, but he knew about Tom Waits and he knew about the theater and stuff. And, um, he, um, us just honored, you know, and to be able to be with he and, and Nels Klein, I mean, yeah, just what a great guitarist as well as a, you know, I mean, Watts just brilliant and gifted and, and so prolific, you know? And so, oh, yeah. yeah. And the whole, the whole concept of the, the opera, it's, it's, it's so multi-layered, but it's interesting because it is about D Boone. It is about growing up in Pedro. It is about his dad. It's about a bunch of stuff. D in D as well. I think I said that, but, but it has sort of an inner story of it's a 24 hour cycle in this one sailor's life from the beginning to the end of the opera you're actually if you know this then you can kind of follow the songs around and it kind of goes from the beginning of the day through the day to the end of the day where he gets shore leave you know and then the dance music hits uh -huh. and then he comes back 
And then it starts to get a little more lamentish because he's going to fall overboard and die. Yeah. Tangled up in a screw is him dying underneath the ship. Wow. Intense. I mean, yeah, just, you know, really f- ridiculously clever and and so many layers, you know, just like it is said that when Mike was young, he he read Cyclopedia Britannica from A to Z. You know, oh. I think he remembered every word, too. <laughs> In that way, we could he and I could almost be no more different, than, <laughs> you know, but we still find common ground for sure. That's and awesome. He's an artist and a big-hearted person, you know. Yeah, yeah, he's um, an amazing person. Yeah, so absolutely. You you played on a bunch of stuff from the uh, like you know the nineties through the two thousands. Geneva Magnus, John Hammond, yep. Fabulous Thunderbirds, Bruce Cockburn. But there's one album that I I love, and I wanted to ask you about this because it's Mark Ford's Neptune Blues Club. Oh, okay. I, I love Mark Ford. Not only because he spells right. his first name correctly, like me, but I just love the sound of his guitar. And you're you're credited with playing junkyard percussion. Right. What, can you tell me I'm a little bit? I'm not sure that, that, that the studio really captures <laughs> the magic quite as well as the live thing. Smashing Pumpkins, I had this really, really large bass drum. Uh, it's a 36-inch bass drum. Okay. And I was at the pro shop in Hollywood, and I went back to their, in the back room there, and I saw this drum, and it was the same exact color as the one that I got stolen, the one that played on the pink room. This, right. It was blue, but it was 32 by 16 instead of 36. Oh, and wow. so okay. I'm looking at it thinking, these guys, they, they, somebody sold them my drum. Well, no, it wasn't because it was bigger. Right. Anyway, with the pumpkins, you know, I wish I could go back and do that gig again because I would, the setup wasn't bad, but I figured out a way to not have the bass drum up, like hitting it like this, mm-hmm. but I just put tom-tom legs on it so I could just pound on it like this. Oh, wow. Way, way better. Plus, then I, you know, have a different bells or metal or different things and just put them on the drum and then just sort of mic the drum head and it becomes a sort of a micro microphonic field oh wow to a degree you still need proximity on certain instruments but yeah you have a variety of sounds just 
you know, and if you want to hit the drum, there's some space over there, you know, <laughs> it's still going to sound like a drum. Right. It's going to rattle a little bit because there's a bunch of sh stuff on there, but, <laughs> but that, that, that was part of it. And then I had a beater that I would play with my foot. You can, if you turn them around, you can get them to hit up like cocktail drums did that where they have like a long floor tomish thing and okay. the guy plays the brushes on the top and hits the bass you're standing and you have like kind of like you can walk in and sit down and start playing you know okay they would maybe bolt a cymbal to the side some even would have like a bolt a little snare drum on the side you know yeah. that's what like tommy with jonathan richmond used to long time ago he used to play one of those he's played a variety of things oh now. cool yeah yeah so that's a real old thing i don't even know if companies make them anymore you yeah. know the, they called them cocktail drums. i've heard of that but i never really yeah. knew what that was <laughs> yeah yeah they would they would have you'd hit the bottom but then at the top they'd put snares are usually you know lifted up onto the bottom head by a, a lever but yeah. you can kind of put like some stiff bristles of what could be sort of snare and just sort of press it up against the head underneath the, the oh. cocktail drum underneath. And it does give that buzziness at the snares. That's basically the snares are there to make it. Yeah. The edge or otherwise it's going to sound like a high Tom Tom. Oh, yeah. Okay. So they would put it yeah, underneath. It was almost as though, you know, somebody took like a, a Afro pick and sort of put it up against the bottom of the, the snare, the, the, the top head. So it buzz a little bit for you. Oh, cool. But, okay. um, yeah. And it's, you know, kind of jive ass, but, um, <laughs> I, you know, yeah, it's kind of hard to play standing because you're, you're not really at the right angle. You're, you're a little too over your ankle, you know? So you, uh -huh. it's a little, a little, a little bit, which anyway, <laughs> that's why I never did it. <laughs> so, uh, so you mentioned the pumpkins. So you've toured with some amazing artists. You know, there's the, the right. pumpkins, Bob yeah. Dylan, Mavis Staples. I mean, do you have a preference between studio work or touring? Is, is there one you prefer doing over the other? Oh, or is it um, two completely separate, different beasts? Yeah, they're pretty different, but, and, you know, I, I looked around as I was kind of wrapping up, you know, like 13 years with Mavis just before the pandemic lockdown. Yeah. And like, man, I'm, I'm getting older, you know, and I've traveled a lot because, well, two things. <laughs> you don't have to be so in charge of organizing your own life because if you just show up on time for the first, <laughs> the first, <laughs> you know, you get to the airplane on time, everything is decided for you, you know, plus as a musician, you're going to make more money than you are at home unless you're really in on the bigger money recording sessions, okay. you know, yeah. And they're very, they're pretty, that's the 1%, you know? Yeah. So I qualify, you know, in different ways with different people, but, and, and with Baguetta and with, with, with Mavis even, you know, and with the Levon Helm, you know, it's like, 
I get the Jim Keltner references and, you know, like the first record we started to support with Mavis was Jim Keltner played on, you know, I go to play with, with Mavis to see with Levon Helm at his, at his upstate place where he does his concerts. And they were like, Hey man, the only guy who sounded as good as you with Levon was Keltner. And I'm like, Oh, well, thank you. You know, <laughs> amen. You know, yeah. <laughs> shit, he's good. You know, I mean, if somebody's good, all I have to do is just listen to him, you know, I yeah. practically ride their coattails, but it just, it's just listening. But people can bring you up to any, you know, if you're, if you can be receptive, you know, their level can work for you too, you know, and yeah, like, and I, and it was his place, you know, so I just let him kind of, do the strident beats and and then um i fill in like kind of you know half drum half percussion you know i'm not trying to match backbeats and crap like that it's like oh <laughs> i don't want to try to do that and that's a, he's already doing that i you know he's already he doesn't want me you know doubling him so we had a had a good time and you know baguetta and watt this this whole touring thing came out of them doing they do like one record a year it seems with Jim Keltner as they you know because they really appreciate right. Jim yeah, as yeah. well and so so here I am again you know and um, there's worse places to be oh you yeah. know for sure yeah <laughs> and um, I do have a question for you about getting some some of the work now like touring with Bob Dylan is that something that Bob's camp reaches out to you and says, Hey, Bob would like you to tour with him. Or is it something that you have to audition for? No, I, you know, I, okay. You know, let's George Rosselli was Bob's drum. One night he was so sick. He asked me if I would play with Bob and I'm like, <laughs> cause I know cause, cause every day I'm setting up, I'm listening to them rehearse, you know, and sometimes there's just, just stuff they're playing and here, you know, Tony playing his stand-up bass with the bow and it's all big as a house in the room and everything. And but some days he's got them doing homework, you know, they're like rehearsing. We barely even get a sound check because they've got so much studying to do. Oh. I think that's why Bob likes to go on the road so he can come down and fiddle around with his songs <laughs> and just play music, you know, then go back to his trailer and then yeah. come back and play the show, you know. <laughs> like it's a fun outing for him. So, and luckily, and that, that didn't come to pass. Luckily, I'm glad it didn't. Cause it's just a been, it wouldn't have been a problem, but it's still George had been playing with him for like 20 years or something, you know, the yeah. familiarity and the nuance was, you know, I mean, yeah. so anyway, but he did say an interesting thing. And it's something that I had discovered myself as well is that he said, so when you, when he starts playing, he goes, just come in with your foot. Just come in with the bass drum. And that really does help. Sometimes with singer-songwriters, if you come in with the top end of your kit too much in the beginning, for me, sometimes I find, oh, I'm actually, I'm ahead of them a little bit. So by just bringing in the foot first, especially in rooms where the the symbols seem to pick up too much anyway. You know, you're, you're recording live and stuff. So the earthiness of the bass drum 
it really focuses things, you know, but it's not obtrusive. It's not like commanding, like a snare drum or a cymbal might be. So, and you give, you give yourself time to like, okay, there we are. You got, you know, cause you got to know where the quarter note is. That's, that's the pulse, you know? Okay. So, so he says, yeah, just come in with the bass drum and then bring yourself to, into the song. And said, okay. Okay. Wow. So luckily that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, our bus was leaving anyway. We left before their set was over, you know, it's just, okay. you know, yeah. but it was sweet. Of, it was kind of sweet of him because he was, he was very supportive of me and, Okay. Yeah. And, well, the thing about it is, you know, it's like Bob had kind of asked Mavis to marry him, you know, back in the day. Yes. Right? I'm aware of that. And so, you know, we'd already done one tour and then we're coming back on the second one and Bob goes to her dressing room and, sh- and she's sort of, you know, in mildly incoherently bubbling away. Oh, Bob, this, Bob, you know, that, you know, just like, flutter she's fluttering or okay. i don't know what, you know yeah. probably a term for it anyway she says something like well you know this will be great we can see each other you know and without dropping a beat well if you would have married me you could have seen me every day you know <laughs> so, so apparently that wasn't too far below the skin level for him you know oh. um, and I think she was, it was just, it was, it's just too intense. You know, she came from a Christian background to where if she sang a blues song that she didn't know was wrong, you know, her grandmother slapped her and then, right. you know, yeah. yeah. Um, and she really didn't marry the guy she really loved, you know, even in her own community. And my God, Bob Dylan is like, like the most famous white guy on the planet, just about. Yeah, you know? still. And then she's still, you know, she's still a black girl from Mississippi, yeah. somewhere deeper in there or something, you know. So just more than I guess she could handle, even though, I, you know, she probably was able to, you know, like be romantic, you know, some to some degree with him, you know, yeah. it was like, and it was really sweet to see them. And I think I actually, God, I hope I have, I hope I took a picture of it because Bob wears those hats, you know, those round kind of flat hats. And so he's got it. And then he usually has these pants with a stripe and then neither one of them is tall, but she's really short. And so this one place we were playing, they just kind of had these, these grounds and buildings that kind of went off so you could kind of just go walk around, you know, and then come back around. So they, they went for a walk and that was pretty cute. I'll tell yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah. When, yeah. When, when, when we first toured with them, George said something was significant about the way that Bob and his assistant, this woman zeroed in on me for some questions and stuff. And oh. George was like, Oh man, you're in, you're in. It's like, <laughs> Where, (laughs) but you know, I mean, sort of. They, you know, no, I was honored to be, you know, even be talked to about, you know, about anything, and and, you know, it's like Bob wanted to know why Mavis was, you know, having shouting away, you know, and when we started, 
I didn't have all the answers, but I asked the two other guys in the band, maybe, maybe we can find a way to make these beats, you know, I mean, these songs, not uh, a more mature somehow okay. to make them hot, but maybe not make them. Cause what ends up happening is that, you know, we ended up, you know, in the beginning, especially it was blood and guts, you know? So we ended up, people would say, gosh, man, you guys are like part Billy holiday, part red hot chili peppers. Cause we, people, you know, head banging, you know, on the, wow. on the, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, between, you know, her rocking out and it's like, look, man, you got to bring this, we got to bring it, you know? Yeah. I mean, when we first played with her at the pier in, on the Thursday night in the summertime, her band didn't show up. So we ended up backing her up. Oh, wow. For quite a while till they got loose from the airport. And then we realized, oh, they're like jazz rock fusion or something, you know? So it was like completely not <laughs> happening. Just like, wow. you know, and, and just her sister singing backup. And she wasn't even, we love Yvonne, but she wasn't singing well, yeah. you know? So there's no singers, you know, and then the whole, it's just like nothing that the staples do. Well, I guess the guys in the band sang, so they, they, they kind of augmented that, but it, nah. Wow. So, so you could kind of see and, you know, okay. So the staples had the first million selling gospel record in America. Right. Okay. That's a big deal. Yeah. And then they had the stack stuff, but after that, they didn't have the high high they didn't have that kind of production value or people guiding them so then they would do like a jazz record or a country or i don't know what but they say they they say well they have a spotty recording history right mm -hmm. and yeah. even the fact that she did a record or two with prince somehow that still didn't make it into the into the machinery somehow yeah. it just wasn't catching fire mm -hmm. and then with the record that um i'm always forgetting the the, uh, the guitar player that helped the rolling stones the um buena vista um, social producer Ry cooter yeah 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 yeah. he produced this record and keltner and, and mike elizond you know it's like they really put a groove into this, but her, her band thought that music was way too raw. They didn't want to deal with it at all. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That was too raw for them somehow. Oh my gosh. But the fact of the matter was, was that the fact that it was brought out on NPR and it was Ry Cooter and Buena Vista social club and coming from a, earthy but a place where more white people for sure were going to find out about it it was of npr and the right. black well but finally had kind of like a little toehold to where you could get yourself back into the game you know so you know we're we're going to um and i'm forgetting the name of it, it was one down in tennessee the guy does big ears festival for the art music it's a really big festival. We play in all these big festivals all over the place. Okay. And, um, you know, getting over, you know, getting yeah. over, you know, just really going for it. We learned how to keep the volume down more and more as, as we progressed. And we rehearsed 
when we first rehearsed with Mavis, we blew her chops out because we were all just so excited. <laughs> and so we had to cancel our first two gigs. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. So we, we, we learned how to rehearse. We learned to just rehearse quietly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Not my gosh. Because... Those the other two guys, you know, they're they're emotional, but they're more they're kind of more thinkers, and I'm the I'm the more like hot hot blooded one, and Mavis is real susceptible to that kind of thing for sure. You know, oh, that's people awesome. Are going for it, you know, she's going yeah. for it too. But once that Chicago connection between she and the Tweety and the Wilco whole thing, yeah. Um, yeah. Then, of course, that, that produced that first record, uh, You're Not Alone, which got the Grammy. Because that whole relationship, he started making the records more, you know, with his son on drums, or they would experiment to where they would basically have the record done when we would show up to make the record. Oh, <laughs> it's, <please. laughs> like, it's like, okay, uh, whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, so, but we did get that first one, and that's the one that did get a Grammy. So, um, oh, that's amazing. I'm glad of that. And that's, I think that really is her first Grammy, really. Oh, I think, wow. I think, you know, I didn't realize that. Yeah. You know, they were, when respect yourself and I'll take you there, you couldn't turn on the radio that you didn't hear it because radio just did that kind of rotation those days. So the staples, they were really, really popular and highly respected, you know, and work with the band and all of that whole thing. And, um, yeah, yeah. Historically, too, Pops was kind of a, he was like a forward thinking. He was kind of an innovator because he was doing cross, you know, Stephen Stills or, cross, or Neil Young or, yeah. or Bob Dylan. He's doing white guy rock music yeah. in the church because he was listening to the words and he's like, okay, well, this guy is on our side, you know? Yep. So, the staples always had that charm. They were like black hippies almost because they got along with everybody. Yeah. They black people liked them, but white people liked them too. So yeah. they, they got over. And I used to ask Mavis, we used to do a lot of gigs with the blind boys and the blind boys would always, she called it ghetto gospel. They always try to burn down the theater, you know, before yeah. we got there. Yeah. And so anyway, I said, well, and I, cause my starry eyed vision of what gospel music kind of died back in the seventies when I saw the rings and the money that some of these famous families were toting around. Yeah. But, but I asked Mavis, I said, well, it all seems like love and happiness, but you know, each group is trying to cut the throat of the last group more or less, you know? Yeah. And, um, but the staples, of course, they had the youth thing. They had cuteness on their side in the beginning. Yeah. So yeah. 
and this little child with I don't I wonder what her voice sounded like when she was that you know still it still had to be something kind of unique right oh for sure so she this voice some kind of oddball voice coming out of this little body <laughs> and think about this Mavis never ever auditioned for anything all she did was walk downstairs and sit down and she became the lead singer in one of the most famous groups in history oh, <laughs> her dad tried to make. A man, a man group, but nobody would show up, and he was so disappointed. He just thought, "Hey, I got a, I got a group right here." Yeah, <laughs> and, and that all of a sudden that light went on, and that was it, man. You know, that's you know, amazing. And, and that's how they did it back in the day. A lot of times it was just one guitar and then the group, and they they learned to clap in unique ways. Yeah. for rhythm but they didn't carry rhythm sections until later to that money and they couldn't afford you know because they all fit in the vehicle and all these things you know so they kept it real simple like that yeah. wow that's yeah. incredible yeah so you, you toured with her for years and while doing that you started working with mike baguetta and mike watt with msfv yeah, yeah. which mm -hmm. That's it's such a unique sound with this band. It's it's really it's like this special punk jazz kind of fusion that yeah. like I've never really heard before. And I the first album really blew me away. continues is right along with a few more vocals on this one. Yeah. He's singing even more on this next up and coming one. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. You know how we do it is the songs that are in human reaction. Mm -hmm. We recorded at the end of the last tour. So we played all those songs throughout the whole tour. Then we record them. Okay. Rather than, you see, and we can do that because now we're supporting human reaction but we spend six weeks rehearsing it yeah. every night on stage just wow. like this is going to be about eight weeks with this new material and he is singing quite a bit more actually he likes it yeah oh that's awesome i like it yeah he's got, he's got a he actually has like a, a dylan type of yeah yeah he has this kind of talk singing kind of a, a conversational thing he's he's coming along with for sure idea to start singing more or was it more of a, of a group idea? no 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 you know he it's mike's group he's a composer you know so he pretty much comes up with the music okay all on his own you know wow. really yeah 
you know, each each year it's a it's a little bit different growth cycle. You know, yeah. that's fascinating. But but but, it, but yeah, but he does he does know us and and I think it's good. I you know it's good for uh, Watt and I because we like working together. But I think it's probably better that we work together in somebody else's situation. He okay. has people that do. I did that thing with him way back when. Yeah, and. And, and that was cool, but then it kind of shifted. And I think just personality-wise, I think we're both kind of happier if I if if we're working for somebody else. And so that's basically two things. I mean, I'm constantly getting or whatever. Are you Mike? You know, for one thing, yeah. it's like no, I'm not Mike. <laughs> we all have gray hair. I get it. You know, <laughs> I'm not Watt. No, um, oh, I forgot what the other. Um, well, it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> That's all right. Sometimes things go, come and go. Yeah, you know? Tell me about it. I don't know. Yeah. So when, when Mike uh, Baguetta was on a while back for the first album, I spoke with him a little bit about the record, the, the writing and recording process. And he was, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, he said it was kind of just like you guys just playing music. And when it came time to figure out songs he was listening and he would just start pulling things out to make the songs was it oh are you talking about what uh baguetta baguetta the the, the first with the first okay. album the second it was the second album a similar process where you guys were just just playing or was it more structured where he would come in with music and, and um, play something specific i'm not you know there was always a certain amount of structure. That's my biggest challenge with his music because the structure of like the sequence, it's kind of a obstacle course. Sometimes it moves around a lot. I'm, I'm used to music that stays more in one place, but then you, you manipulate that within boundaries and what okay. have you. But and I could be thinking uh, about a different project too. Well, okay. For the, well, the first record, with Keltner and Watt and Baguetta, Baguetta had written music that was too hard for anybody to read. Even Keltner wasn't reading wow. it. Wow. Watt definitely wasn't in real time, you know, with yeah. time changes and all this stuff. And wow. Chris had Schlarb had said, dude, dude, this isn't, you know. So anyway, yeah. so that music was Watt getting on a good strong bass line and Kildare just like doing all kinds of really interesting bits and pieces, you know, yeah. but not just beat playing beat drums. Not that that's bad, but right, I mean, right. like being, you know, more fluid about the whole thing, jamming more. So I can imagine him. Yeah. You know, bringing in bits, taking bits out, adding a little bit to, add some variation on the theme or something. So that one, that was a real learning one for Baguetta's. That, like, that may be the one I'm thinking yeah, of then. Yeah. That, you know, so that, that's probably where that one, you know, cause they did have some songs that were okay to play because they weren't so many time changes and all this go to seven, four five. The, ah, you know. <laughs> so I did all that in college and, yeah success at it you know but a lot of the music that i've played ever since is you go in a different part of your brain than than the, the part of your brain that reads looks at music and interprets that into sounds you know yeah it's like not that i couldn't get it going again but 
I don't, yeah. you know, I, I well, you I want to, man. Why? I read more than anybody that, that I work with, you know, yeah. I mean, almost none of them read. <laughs> <laughs> That's the good thing about Baguetta is he's a music reader. So I say, you write out the parts, you know, because when I'm trying to take, you know, dictation off of your demos, you know, sometimes it's unclear and it's like, I'm wasting a lot of time. You know how to write it. You composed it. Write me the damn chart, you know? <laughs> and so we're learning how I learn and, and what he needs to do, you know, <sighs> like the last tour, he got material to us way too late. And both Watt and I were like, you know, it's like we weren't prepared, you know, oh. and that, that's, it doesn't play out well. These guys are too intense, you know, yeah. to not be on top, pretty much on top of the material. So the new, yeah. with, with the new album, you said you've been playing the songs for a while. Right. So, so, so yeah. So, so human reaction got played for six weeks wow. plus a bunch of songs that came from early from, you know, the album before that, let's say, and we recorded a few things two or three records during lockdown where we would just send files to oh, each other. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. much. Huh? Yeah. There's, you can check that on the website, but there's one with us and Nels Klein that's on striped light. That's a pretty cool one. And then there's oh. one, a four song thing. This, artist Scott Eicher makes these really wild paintings. And so we took four paintings and then composed music for each painting. Oh, and wow. Those, yeah, that's a, those are two different EPs that we made during lockdown. And they're, I like them. I think they're pretty darn cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. That was cool. But so, yeah. So, so like I said, we're, you know, we, we were already playing human reaction and then we recorded it like, like a year ago after the tour. Staring straight into the sun I can't tell I might be dead Well, I'm pretty sure it's all in my head Because we really knew it And and so now we get to support it That's our new record <laughs> And then once we get done with this We'll make our next year's new record Which you're playing music play for now yeah, yeah, yeah. We're playing <laughs> human reaction music and then whatever the new one's going to get called. Oh, wow. Now. And that's, that's how, because a lot of bands do it first and you don't really know the songs that well yet. You right. know, or you can't kind of, because the thing about it was like, okay, we did like human reaction six weeks, but he's always changing the songs, you know, until the last week is like, okay, now to, to put the dynamic here. And then, you know, it's like, you know, and wow. so, I mean, you know, it's like keeps kind of shaping the clay, you know, yeah. and until, you know, and so. So by the time you go into record it, you guys are really familiar with it. Yeah. And we also have the variety of, of densities of textures, you know, and all of this. Yeah. And also, 
baguette is learning like like when bb king sings he turns the volume off on his guitar and he holds the strings you know just holds the guitar yeah maybe once in a while he might answer something but usually he just doesn't play at all oh, you know wow. and you know baguette is so new at this it's like you know it, it might, you know, it's kind of sounds better when you don't play your guitar when you're singing. Wow. You can hear your singing better. Yeah. Then when your guitar does come in, it's, you know, it's like a, a welcome surprise, right? It's more impactful. Right. Yeah. Okay. Because you didn't, you, you took away and you're withheld, you know, and then, oh, there it is again, you know, and so. And and the fact that it's withheld makes the vacancy in the in the palette of the sound, right? True. So there's so there's an emptiness. Yeah. And so the listener leans forward and all of a sudden, like what do they say? Uh, hi hat on the verse, ride symbol on the chorus. It's kinda, you know, like something recessive on the verse, something that goes out on the chorus. Okay. The chorus is they they volumize they 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 fluff they you know they puff they get big they open up and then whoop, get off that symbol that's an you know that's just an example it's many ways but back to something tick 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 rather than spreading out you know okay. so it's like I know what you're saying now. you know you know it's like the guy with the Tom Petty Ben Montench you know was at a this. Venice Beach had a jam session in this mug wumps or something surf shop would have them. I don't know why, just music lovers. So, and he's kind of famous for this with the, with the Tom Petty thing as well. So we're jamming and, you know, I haven't realized that he hasn't played a note. Right. <laughs> okay. And then all of a sudden, it's his turn to play. Boom. It's like, holy shit. Damn. <laughs> and I'm just John Pugh, Q public listener, right? Right. You're going to have the same reaction, right? He does that with Petty. He'll sit there and wait. And then at the right key moment, dong, he'll hit one note. Boom. This is like, that's like, it's like a God note. Yeah. You know, it's like, Oh my God. <laughs> you know, it's just like, Whoa. So, you know, it's subtractive and additive. And sometimes that punk rock thing or, or like singer songwriter thing where they don't know how to get out of their own way sometimes. Right. Ooh, I, yeah. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> no, but I think he's learning also because having trouble by never, never sang every night a whole bunch of songs, yeah. you know, rather than just one or two. So it's like, Oh, I got to conserve this muscle. This is like way harder than I th thought, you know? Yeah. So it's like, and it's not impossible, but the thing of it is, is that, you know, when we, when we stress the diet, people keep talking about the dynamics, but you know, I think there's still further to go into it, especially for the singing, because it brings it out. Plus, I'm not sure that physically, you know, because sometimes he's concentrating on the singing and then our parts, you know, might be fighting each other a little bit, you know, because yeah, they're yeah. similar sometimes. It's like, just don't play. Let me take care of that and then come in and we'll join up on the, it's like, yeah. Hey, I mean, yeah. look, 
Nirvana wouldn't have been nearly as popular if somebody hadn't said, play the verses kind of quiet and rage on the choruses, you know? Exactly. And, and they aren't, they aren't quiet in, in God's dynamics of truly quiet, but they're much quieter than they are on their raging choruses with the ride cymbals and even the heavier snare drum. You know? But the fact that they cut the cymbals and just keep things considerably more open, empty, yeah, that's a big deal. Uh, yeah. that, that, that's all that is, is classic accompaniment. This is like, this is just standard issue for anybody who's an accompanist that's worth their shit is that you play quietly when somebody sings and you open up when they don't sing. So then you get the, you get the benefit of, Oh, this is beautiful music. And then oh, it's quiet. And then the voice is big, you know, it's like, this is classic accompaniment. You know, it's like, what is it? In, in 1650, some Italian guy, you know, decided that he would write out, you know, musical nomenclature, right? Mm -hmm. So, so right. piano means quiet and forte means loud, you know, but yeah. they have forte is one F, two Fs. These are dynamic markings. Two Fs is fortissimo. And fortissimo is as loud as possible. Oh, so okay. Have, and on the bottom end, you have P for piano, then pianissimo, which is pretty quiet. And pianissimo is almost inaudible, as quiet as possible. And you have the same kind of distributions between mezzo, med medium, you know, medium loud, medium soft, what have you. Okay. And some markings even have like, five f's and five p's you know different gradations oh my God. well look it's all gradations of of dynamics right okay. of just like from loud from quiet to loud yeah. you can slice it up in as many little ways as you want but what we're finding because people like our dynamics already but and they have they have their purpose but some of them are extremely functional especially when considering the singing mm -hmm. because they're fighting against, you know, several thousand Watts of amplification, you know, and, you know, it's like you have this tightrope walk between nature's dynamics, which I just talked about mm -hmm. the Italian guy with the triple F and the triple P right, and then guitar wattage. So it's like, look, you know, what noise floor level, are you looking for here? Right. Mm -hmm. Cause that's basically the bottom line. What's the noise floor level. It's like, is it going to be like a, a quiet, like a really uh, honestly goodness quiet? Or are we going to have like a medium, you know, and look, you know, obviously when the Rolling Stones play Brown sugar, you know, it's pretty much medium strong velocity throughout the whole thing. This right. is rock and roll. Right. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, this is more like music that people can kind of dance to, but they listen to as well. Yeah. So, so it's kind of a half and half. It isn't, it isn't trying to be just party music. Right. It's right. kind of mental a bit. Yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's a body music, but it's also cerebral. Yeah. So I've been listening to the, the new MSSV album a lot and I've got, some of the favorites that I, I, I love listening to, I go back to 
Uh-huh. And like like French Road Drifters. I think that's my favorite oh, yeah. track on the album. But I also love the human reaction, junk haiku in this moment. I think what you're doing on in this moment is insane. I absolutely love it. that you love to play live more than others off this album? Do you have a favorite that's that you like when you hit the road? <laughs> well, you know, I don't know if I have out out favorite necessarily. Some I have to put out a lot more heat. Others, they really do have a much lower, like in this moment, it's a much lower noise floor level, right? right? Yeah. yeah. So then you're kind of referencing, you know, sort of this... Uh, textural jazz you know okay the, not the not the beat stuff but the more you know maybe sort of meditation or you know pharaoh saunders guys who aren't always playing every everything in time some is more like an atmosphere kind of a thing right yeah. yes french road is another one that's a fairly low noise floor level you know mm -hmm. and except for the the big parts happens twice i guess but yeah um so it's almost like a, um, you know, that song Bolero. Boom, da, 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 yep, da, 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 I love da. that. You know, it's not Bolero because that's in three four, but it's that kind of thing where it's got you know kind of a rolly snare drum thing. Yeah. Uh, basically runs the runs the beat. That's yeah. the beat of the song, except for in the big choruses that happens twice, and I guess at the end too. Yeah. 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 But um yeah, I mean, you know, and and then like human reaction has got kind of that jungle tom tom kind of thing. And there's still stuff in the new material with with some of that kind of kind of stuff different different but still in there. So Oh, that is awesome. But yeah, we're then also Watt Watt's not sure what he's going to do about his knee. I'm not sure if he's going to get the operation or not, but oh, one wow. thing he's doing on this tour is that he just basically sits on a chair. So we just kind of like, look, I just started to look over there and there he is, you yeah. know, we're just, we're just playing away. So <laughs> um, the music's hard enough that, and we're different enough people that we've had to learn how each of us learn. Mm -hmm and help each other learn in the way we do, you know? Yeah. So some of the songs, you know, it's just like, I just really have to learn them by rote, 
you know, over and over again, because, and I, I look for the, I look for the like patterns and, and, um, you know, okay, that section is the same as that section down there. Okay. You know, it's like, (laughs) it's like little, little blocks of information, you know, as, as I, refine the charts that I'm reading and stuff, you know, it's like, Oh, look at the old, I can't look at that. I just throw it away. It's like, that's just going to confuse me. You know, I'm, I'm beyond that. If we're look, we're doing it this way now, you know, it's just like keep refining the last thing, you know? So, so on a couple, on some of the new songs, I, I do have a very, very simple chart that I read on. It's part of my set list that i probably will be able to eliminate by the time we're done with this tour. But I think, you know, but some of them is like, it's going back and forth. It's like 12 different changes in one song, you know, oh 12 God. different sections, you know, okay. Now they're not each a different section, but there's different amounts of two or three different sections, you okay. know, as you go through it. Okay. This time you do three of them, but over here now you do two and then here you do five of them, you know, they're all the same, but you got to remember how many of them, you know, and what comes after it's like, sometimes it just takes me a second. It well, just takes me a second sometimes. You guys are about to head back out on tour. You, you, you're yeah, kind of on a break yeah, right a now. More, one more day off the 19th tomorrow. And then the 20th we play in Joshua tree. So which is, is this, yeah, this going to be more of a, of a, extensive tour than than the last time because the last uh you, you said you were just basically on the west coast are you spreading out a little bit on this well, next leg okay so now last time we did we did use the coast but we did it all in a in a six week we got in a van for six weeks this time we did almost two weeks on the coast came home for th- three days and now we'll just basically without doing the West coast, we'll immediately just do the rest of the U S. So it's kind of like now we're going to start the same tour that we did last time, ah. but we already did the, we already did the coast. So we don't, cause it, <laughs> last time it was a six week tour, but now honestly, this is eight weeks, basically just shy of a couple of days. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just pulled yeah. up off the website, mainsteamstopvalve.com and I'm, I'm looking up the, uh, the tour dates. Well, is, is mainsteamstopvalve.com the best place to find the, the tour dates? Yeah. It's the easiest thing. And you, and here's the genius of what is like, okay, he won't let up off of this nautical thing. Okay. <laughs> that's fine. But the genius is, is that MSSV, that's it. Yeah. You don't have to remember anything. You can just type in MSSV and it'll just take, it'll probably, sometimes it just says you type in those four letters and then it says band. Yep. Okay. Yeah. That's exactly but what I just it's did. Like, it's genius because nobody has to remember mainstream stop valve, which is, yes, it's from, it's from a lot of, a lot of from the opera is about the sand pebbles. There was a movie about how the Chinese were taken advantage of back in the second world war. Yes. I'm familiar with that movie. Yeah. And so Steve McQueen starts breaking these, uh, these taboo things to where it was all structured to where there was one Chinese guy who was the head guy and everybody else was under him. 
And it was a, a bad situation, but it was still a stupid situation because nobody's getting educated. And so Holman, I, I think that was his name, but anyway, Steve McQueen befriends this one guy who's not the top guy and starts teaching him about steam. Yeah. This time, you know, steam lives steam, you know, it's like, and so little by little through pigeon English and stuff, he's teaching this guy and taking a bunch of heat for it from the Chinese and from his white guys too. Yeah. The white guy. Too. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, when we talk, you know, cause you see what is the, and the, the Minutemen were the sons of Navy chiefs, right? Mm -hmm. They all live in the housing. It's the highest non-commissioned officer. They're the blue collar. They run the Navy. Yeah. The, upper, the uppers, their, their clothes never get dirty. I used to go to the Naval shipyard to pick up laundry and the workers, their laundry is nasty. Yeah. And the guy, the, the officers, they're just bringing you clean clothes to get them, you know, rinsed and done. Right. You know? So, um, so, Okay, so anyway, I mean, we don't say turn right, turn left. We say port, you know, three o'clock, starboard, uh, one o'clock, whatever, you know, whatever. Yeah, one o'clock or whatever. So there's a lot of clarity and precision in language um, that comes directly because of Watts' closeness with the Navy and his father's insistence on accuracy verbal accuracy wow you know? yeah oh. and it, and when you really think about it, it does make sense rather than using these over there or right or left or what have you you know yeah it's like and you know it's like you don't answer with right you know you answer with you know like affirmative or you know something you know it's like yes and you know uh, it you know, when you're, when you're driving around in a vehicle and you have a bunch of people's lives in, in your steering wheel and it makes sense. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's kind of, it's kind of radical, but it, it does make sense. <laughs> and, you know, so we do our best to remember, you know, yeah. And the way you remember is that right has more letters than left. So starboard is to the right. Cause that's more. And then port is left right that, i got to keep reminding myself that little bit until <laughs> it becomes more second nature you know but um oh. yeah. <laughs> well I yeah the you know uh, the the thing the the thing with with wicked grin with john hammond mm -hmm. you know that is like that was a really special deal because with a lot of the waste records He's got a, he's got a f fair amount of variation, so you you might not play on every song, which is fine. Right. But with the Wicked Grin, you know, Larry and I played was our group. We played from the beginning to the end.
last session, all, all but the song 219, I think Tom Waits played rhythm guitar, and he plays great rhythm guitar, you oh, know. Wow. So well, he plays cool. I like his guitar style a lot. And of course, John Hammond, you know, is great. Oh, yeah. And, so, and then Augie Myers is so, you know, he's the Sir Douglas Quintet. So he's famous for these eighth notes, these rhythms and stuff that he does. And then he has his squeeze box. So, oh, so yeah, that, that was a, that was a big deal for all of us. And we all got to tour Larry and all of us were all through Europe and, and, um, some in America for sure. And, uh, that it was volatile enough that that lasted one whole year of touring. Wow. Um, God. Then the other company that I really liked with John Hammond was when we did a trio with just John and Marty Ballou on bass, stand-up oh. bass. It was really great. Oh, and wow. the communication between Marty and myself was really good. Then we had other, you know, we didn't have anybody else to, to, to have like a misinterpretation because <laughs> it didn't exist, right. you know. Nobody left on stage. Right. So, <laughs> so we could do really cool endings and stuff and you know i could just play an ending and he just follow me oh man so we, we you know it's like when you really can listen if somebody will really just listen to the drummer i can lead you into and you'll sound good and i'll sound good too you know and we'll have a cool ending as well you know it's like <laughs> don't let the ball hit the ground man just you know that's that's good funny advice. How certain certain players you know like if the singer kind of goes like that, they don't end. Yeah. They just like fall off. It's like, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> what the hell? You got to finish, man. Just because she's whacked. Yeah. She's lazy. She's lazy. <laughs> don't pay attention to her. You're making us sound bad. You know, it's like Watts always saying, you know, it's like, look, if you start okay and you end okay, the middle whatever you know yeah. but if you act well people think that was great Aces, baby Aces. Yeah. so that's good advice. <laughs> just just follow you listen to your drummer honestly it's really if you do if you do it could be <laughs> it'll, it just makes life real simple you know? it really does and that's how that's how it was always done back in the day like we we were we were used to open these planet hollywood so we're we're at the one in costa mesa yeah. stevie wonder comes up on stage oh wow and we're like oh my god in this something right yeah so we're like okay so he's he's kind of near me he goes drummer and he he boom, 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 he claps me out of beat it's like and then he calls out these chords he goes and so Smokey, he says he just strums the chords that he that he calls, and then they probably surmise, okay, this is the key of blah blah blah. You know, yeah. next thing we know, we're freaking cooking on high heeled sneakers. You know, wow. And then something that Stevie Wonder did, and this is another old school magic thing. He shifted us somehow into like a half step soul bridge or something. <laughs> Just by the way he he knew how to signal this stuff somehow, and I, I think I think he did it with his voice and maybe with a hand gesture as well. Okay. But we knew, and they went to this thing, and then it came back to the head again, and it's like, 
That yeah. is the way this music was put together by listening, call and response, and then listening to your drummer as well. But that's listening cool. to the the call, and that's the the, ver the melody, you know. Yeah. Call and we respond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's why I don't really like. I'm not that crazy about count offs because. Uh. Uh, because we're back to the dance class and back to Tom. And if you know how to vocalize what you're talking about and what you're feeling, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But if you're just going one, two, three, four, it doesn't really tell me anything other than we're going to go about that tempo, you know? Right. Nah. You know, so I kind of like it when people, you know, I like the Count Basie approach where you kind of get things going and then everybody kind of gets in there and we all kind of get comfortable and then blow it up. Oh, you know? that is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I told, I told this one singer, I said, you know, as you go from one to two to three to four, my anxiety raises <laughs> as you go up to number four. <laughs> now, if you want to cut my anxiety down, stop making me hear one, two, three, four, and just go ahead and play your guitar. It doesn't sound thin. It just sounds like a guitar. Yeah. Oh, that's it's, awesome. It's not a guitar with the whole band. I grant you that. But I'm picking up so much information in just four beats of you actually playing the music, you know, I know, you know, it, it tells me so many things about how to hit, what to hit, how hard, how not hard or whatever, you know, or, or the mood of this thing, you know, That's it's incredible. like so much information that look, if, so I'm saying is like when the teacher knows when the, they know how to use their voice to, to get you, to know what you're really aiming at, you know, yep. otherwise, yeah, yeah, I'd rather just hear some music and then get in and join in. Yeah. But not everybody likes that. Some people think it's, it's special just to count off and just start from nothing, yeah. you know, complete silence. And that's fine. But like when we're, we're going to play with psychic temple again, oh, um, cool. at, at Zebulon, right? Yeah. That's where we end. It's a nice club, a really great club in LA. And we couldn't be more different because they are kind of just, they groove and groove and groove, you know? Yeah. And we groove, but we like, we're like, okay, we groove here. Now we go over, do this and go back <laughs> and do that again and go back, you know, and it's that kind of music that, you know, people like to follow. It's like, a toboggan run or something. I don't know. So, um, <laughs> but they're like, they're more like that desert thing, you know, yeah. where you kind of put it in gear and then just let the heat. Yeah. There's something to be said about that yeah. as, as a magical thing too. So let it take um, you where it wants to go. Yeah. But definitely challenging. The music is challenging with yeah. MSFB. It's not impossible at all, but it's just, you know, it's challenging because you know, when you're, when you're trying to make parts, you make it to the, the, the right part, you know, until you're really more secured in your arrangement, it's hard to play, you know, to play more music because you're making parts, you uh, know, you're making it, you, yeah. you know, and, and you're hitting, you're hitting your cues, you know, and to, so to get where you're comfortable with all that and you're, and then you're still able to, improvise or do a little bit of, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that, it, you know, and that's okay. Yeah. It takes a second, <laughs> but, um, 
but people seem to like what's going on. You know, they really, they, they're very appreciative and um, we like, are too. Yeah. Like yeah. I said, it's a very yeah. unique sound. I mean, I have kept you for almost two hours tonight. Thank you so much oh, for yeah, spending sure. so much time and, and talking about all your, your work. It's been, it's been a fascinating experience going through and listening and then not even realizing until just recently doing the uh, research that you were part of one of my favorite tracks of all time, the pink room. So thank Isn't you. Isn't that funny? I, that, it's amazing. Yeah, that, that's a standout for me somehow. Yeah. That, and especially because we got to do it with David as well. Yeah. Jariki. Yeah. But um, yeah, that it's just an example of your work and your choices, you know, the instrument choices and what have you really making sense. And it was yeah. like, okay, yeah those triplets on the bongo and the snare on it, that, that made sense. You know, that was like, it's like a blues thing, but it's, it's in a different dimension sonically, you know? Oh, yeah. So, and, and, and it's good to be a little bit trippy, but still earthy. Cause you know, Lynch, he likes craziness, but he also likes that grounded kind of earthy thing too. You know? Okay. So you maybe give him the earth, but you alter the sounds a little bit. Okay. And, you know, and he's, so yeah, that. Well, I appreciate yeah. you spending yeah, some time. Thank you so much, man. Yeah. yeah. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 